it's like we want these things that provide easy fixes, forgetting that we're constantly changing. And the only thing that creates like long term change are these like daily things where we're just finding our way back to balance. And those things look different on a daily basis. But that's why there is no like 21 day trick, because ultimately your life is much longer than 21 days. Welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast, where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. We are your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow living apparel and lifestyle brand. Hey, mom. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about how the slow living challenge is going because we are in the middle of week four. Yes, this week is the theme is time, and which is coincidental that it overlapped with the beginning of daylight savings time. So I think time is something that's on everybody's mind this week anyway. And uh, we've had a lot of great interaction on the other weeks. We've had people really interested in the clothing, food, and spaces. And I'm really enjoying it myself. I'm enjoying the posts and I'm enjoying the discussions that are going on around this and I think it's it's really fun. Have you have you learned anything new that you didn't think about before? <laughs> As the creator of the Slow Living Challenge, have you picked up on anything? Well, I don't know. I I guess I would say that I just go into these things more deeply like I I think of them as I'm writing them or a write out of some experience in the past that, that I think is uh, useful to pass along to people. But then as I'm asking people to do it, I of course try to participate myself and you just go deeper into the, the concepts, the thoughts, the ideas behind these things. And of course, the deeper you go into something, the more you learn. So what are some of your experiences with it so far, Emma? What what have you what have you stumbled on that's well something that I've found is really interesting is um how many times I've seen it expressed that people are frust can be frustrated that uh the slow living thing seems like trendy or shallow in a way um like a lot of the responses that we've had have been like actually really positive like thank you for doing this because um it seemed like there was nothing much to this like slow living thing um and now I realize that it's so much more and so I I find that interesting because I I just personally haven't seen it as a trend I feel like it's not trendy like it's not normal (laughs) and it's kind of confusing when we talk about it so um I think that's and we actually talk a little bit about that in our interview with Anna that's coming up that you guys can hear how there seems to be a resistance around um anything that people are catching on to and posting about or talking about even if it's good for us um and I think that comes from a place where like it's also easy to catch on to things that 
seem like they're good for us, but they're not good for us, you know, whether it's a fad diet or a fad way of being. Um, I also think that it's easy in these contexts to feel like bad about not doing something or not fitting into a certain way. And I hope, it would be my hope that with Lady Farmer and with the Slow Living Challenge, we offer a place where there's not really like one way to do any one thing. There's not any one way to be more sustainable or to live slowly, but it can mean a lot of different things. Um, And to try not to be resistant to the idea just because it might seem like you can't fit into it at first. Right. And I I think we, we say that a lot. We say that there's no right or wrong thing here. And, you know, please try to refrain from judging yourself or making it something else you have to do, that kind of thing. But back to your comments about uh, it being a trend, I would see it as almost like a, a counter trend because the trend is the way most people are living and um, feeling rushed and not well and not time for anything and too much stuff and those are the trends so when you introduce other ideas and you put a a a label on it or a phrase like slow living we did not invent slow living it's something that's been floating around for a while but uh, I would say like there's probably a, a number of people kind of aware of that phrase now and and trying to explore what that really means. And so it's just funny that that would be labeled as a trend when it's really like the opposite of of the trend. So it's just a funny thing. It's all perception. Everything's all perception. What I, I enjoy about it is, is when people respond in a way that you realize um, they're thinking about something in a different way. So speaking of slow living, Emma, um, what have you done in the last couple of weeks or since we were last here that, that you would call allowing yourself some slow living? Um, in the past few weeks, there have been several instances where I have been in the company of someone that I want to be around having meaningful conversation and enjoying the moment and also been very well aware of the many things that I have to do, uh, my endless to-do list that doesn't really ever seem to go all the way away. And um, that kind of low-level hum behind you of like, these are all the things that you could be doing right now, but instead you're sitting here like talking or having coffee or whatever it is that's not doing those things. Um, I can think of two or three times specifically when I've very intentionally like turned off the hum and been like, and I've had the specific thought like in five years and 10 years, I'm not going to remember anything about the endless to-do list that I had to do, but I am going to remember this quality time and being in this moment. And so for that reason, even that intentional thought of like, I'm just going to be present right now has helped me. 
that's stuck in my brain. And of course, I have no idea what it was that I was supposed to be doing or thought I was supposed to be doing that I wasn't getting to or whatever. But I do remember the two or three times that I spent some really good quality time with another human and I enjoyed the moment and I spent my time, um, you know, and it wasn't like it was a long amount of time. Probably each instance that I'm thinking of is 30 to 45 minutes. I don't know. How much can you really get done then, you know? So it's kind of a battle with my own feeling of having to be productive all the time that I've really sort of tried to refocus in the past few weeks. Yes. And I ha- I had a similar experience. Uh, oh, one of the days this past weekend happened to be really warm and sunny and those are great days to get out and in March and start prepping the garden and thinking about seeds and all that stuff. And, um, I, as you say, kind of turned off that hum and I allowed myself a good hour or more in the hammock outside in the sun. And I actually fell asleep and it was just lovely and it was refreshing and, I, I did have to sort of talk myself out of the, oh, you could be doing all these things today. But it was worth it. And it's so pertinent to our discussion today with our guests because so much of what we deal with in our, our, our time issues and our time scarcity has to do with perception, how we're looking at something. So, yeah, we should... We should talk about that. So yeah, that's a great that's a great segue to introduce our guest today. Um, we are talking to Anna Bronis. She is a Swedish American freelance writer and artist, and she called in um, from her home outside of Seattle. So we were it was a trans American call. Um, Though we've never actually met Anna in person, we've known her for a few years through our friend Amy Dufault. Shout out, episode one. If you haven't listened to that yet, definitely go back and listen to Amy's episode. Um, We actually had both of them on a webinar that we hosted a couple of years ago, which I think was kind of an early version of of our podcast. It was before we we had really thought that much about even having a podcast, um, and it worked really, really well. We loved those webinars. Some of you listeners might remember them. Um, We had them on to talk about a project that they do together called the Food and Fibers Project. You can find them on Instagram. They do some beautiful photography and storytelling around food and fiber. So we knew at that time even that we had a lot in common and lots to talk about. Yes, we recognized then that Honest talents and accomplishments are many. And even if you can't like easily lump them into some soundbite summary, she's a writer, an artist, a publisher, a producer. She works in a variety of mediums and on numerous topics. But she's also someone who we believe embodies the heart and soul of slow living in both her life and her work. Her cross-cultural and somewhat alternative upbringing with a Swedish mother and a California-born father really gives her a unique perspective on both the Scandinavian and American lifestyles. 
her great-grandparents were actually homesteaders in the same small Pacific Northwest town where she was raised in an out-of-the-way cabin in the woods, which is in the same town where she now lives with her husband and in walking distance from her parents. Anna's freelancing allows her to stay close to home when she's not traveling, where she admits this sense of place and love of her natural surroundings that extends from her childhood experiences into her present life is a very strong influence on her work. Anna has written numerous books, including Live Lagom, Balanced Living, The Swedish Way, and Fika, The Art of the Swedish Coffee Break. I think I'm saying that right. She's also the editor of the online food magazine Foodie Underground and has been featured in the New York Times. And she's a contributor to a variety of publications, including BBC, Guardian, Sprudge, Women's Adventure, Good, and Punch. She's also the founder and publisher of Comestible, a print and digital platform devoted to stories and art about food. Her writing, books, and recipes have been featured in places like the New York Times Tea Magazine, Eater, Cool Hunting, Food 52, Bicycling, Sprudge, Adventure Journal, Adventure Cyclist, Taproot, and more. Anna also works as a paper cut artist, creating graphic illustrations from a single piece of paper, and her paper cuts are featured as chapter headings in the 2019 edition of Joy of Cooking. She just finished her work on the Women's Wisdom Project, a series featuring 100 paper cut portraits of amazing women and their insight and contributions to the world. Our talk with Anna touched on so many topics that are important to us in our messaging about slow living, sustainability, and creativity. We bring up questions like, is the slow living movement just a trend? Where do sustainability and privilege intersect? Where does choice become a responsibility? And how can we reclaim our creative time in an accomplishment-oriented society? The discussion of our conventional assumptions about spending time and wasting time was particularly relevant to the theme of our slow living challenge this week and the fact that we're a few days into daylight savings, which is becoming more and more controversial. And Anna even describes the technique we call time gleaning, which is becoming aware of those moments that are in between and transforming this time into moments of creativity and presence. We feel that all of these things, of course, are relevant to good dirt and the regeneration of our health and well-being as individuals and as a society. And as fertile soil, isn't good dirt analogous to a balanced and healthy lifestyle as the foundation of creative work? And isn't our best and most heartfelt creative work the most valuable thing we have to offer the world? See what you think. Thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to our conversation with Anna Bronis. So, my name is Anna Bronis, and I do a variety of things for work. Uh, I'm a writer and an artist, um, I do some film production. And then I also do a little bit of publishing. I publish a small zine about food called Comestible, um, and I also have a website for that. Um, so yeah, a little bit all over the place. Uh, but I live um, in western Washington, about an hour and a half from Seattle, um, and I moved back to my hometown, a little small rural town um, that's on a peninsula. Um, so I actually rent a little house on the water, which is magical. 
um, but moved back here oh about four years ago. Yeah, so I live um, within walking distance of my parents' house, which is the house that I grew up in and my parents built. Um, and that's really nice. And I, yeah, I was, I, I had been living in Paris before that um, with my partner. Uh, and we just wanted to do something different and not be in a big city. And the opportunity presented itself to come back here. Um, so I just decided that that was really nice to be able to be close to my parents while they were still in good health. Um, and then I just really miss the Northwest too. Um, just like the landscape here very much feels like home to me, even though America doesn't always culturally feel like home, but. <laughs> yeah. Let's um, talk about that a little bit. What's your um, yeah. cultural background? Yeah. So my mom is Swedish. Uh, so she's born and raised in Sweden. And then my dad um, is born and raised in LA. Uh, but his, his grandparents, so my great grandparents homesteaded um, in this little town that I live in now. Um, so he used to spend all of his summers coming up here and working for his uncle who owned the local hardware store, um, which burned to the ground, but then was rebuilt in that hardware store is that new hardware store is still in the little town that I live in, um, which is kind of a nice family connection. Um, but yeah, so they met cause my father was studying abroad in Sweden, um, and then they lived there for a while and then they decided to move back here and my mom really didn't want to move to LA. So they ended up up here, um, in the forests of Western Washington. Uh, so yeah, I grew up, uh, speaking Swedish. We only spoke Swedish at home when I was little. And then my mom and I would go and spend most of our summers in Sweden, um, when I was little. So kind of yeah, really only grew up with like Swedish children's books and um, wow. then started oh speaking goodness. English when I like hung out with my English speaking friends, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, it was maybe a bit more like alternative of a upbringing than probably most of my friends had. Um, when I yeah. think of, you mentioned you had all Swedish children's books when you were growing up. I think of Carl Larson. Yeah, yep. And um, Elsa Vesco is the other one that a lot of people sometimes no she did the really beautiful illustrations of um you might have seen them they're like kind of forest fairy type stuff and there's always yeah. like little children with like the mushroom like the red mushrooms yes. for like hats yeah <laughs> yes yes yep. yes oh, and then nice. Astrid Lindgren who's um yes. the author of lots of children's books but probably to most um your listeners would probably know um Pippi Longstocking it's probably our oh, most yeah, famous. Of course. Yeah. Yep. So while we're on the subject, talk to us a little bit about how your cultural upbringing, both like actual Swedish and then kind of this alternative like Pacific Northwest homestead childhood, um, how does that influence your art and what you do? Yeah. I mean, I think how we grow up often influences what we do, even in ways that we're not really conscious of until we, until we start thinking about it. Um, so yeah, that stuff all comes out through most of my work, whether I'm intentional about it or not, um, since that's all very much a big part of who I am. And obviously, as artists, we put ourselves into our work. Um, so I don't know, well, I mean, more tangible ways are probably that I, I've done a lot of writing about kind of Scandinavian lifestyle and culture. So I have a couple of books, um, Fika, The Art of the Swedish Coffee Break, uh, which is about the Swedish custom of coffee breaks <laughs> um <laughs> and then live lagom which is about the the swedish word lagom which means um 
like just the right amount. So not too much, not too little sort of this like idea of balance and moderation. Um, and then I think in my visual work, so I also work as a paper cut illustrator. Um, so I literally cut pieces of paper. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of that kind of, I think, I think nature plays a lot, plays into that quite a bit. So, um, it was actually really funny because I had a friend visiting from Germany last fall. And so we'd kind of, um, stayed for a couple of nights on an Island where there's some, there's a state park that has these really cool cabins and kind of done this like tour of all of our favorite spots. And she was like, Oh, there are Anna trees. <laughs> Cause I do a lot of trees <laughs> in my work. And so yes. it's like kind of just that silhouette of like cedar and fir trees. And I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> I think it's really interesting in a visual work that like, I'm always so fascinated that, um, that really you come out through that work. Cause sometimes if you're just working on one piece, you kind of just see it as one individual piece. But when you see it as part of something else, you're like, Oh, I have a style and a voice that I didn't intentionally put into play. It's kind of magical. Yes. That's so cool. You were just talking about Logum and um, Emma said she read the book and I've been reading the book and I'm just, I'm so impressed with how um, simpatico it is with the whole, um, you know, what we talk about at Lady Farmer, like all the time, like almost every sentence is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's, a, there's so much overlapping there. And I, I and specifically with slow living, I would say. Slow living, yes. I think it's, they're interchangeable almost. Yeah. Really, they are. And I didn't even know about Logan before I learned about it from you. Um, but to tell us about the book and, and like you're writing it and, and how you decided to, to publish a book about something that's literally a, a, um, in Swedish culture, like an everyday word, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so I actually didn't pitch that book. So I was approached to write that book. Um, so here's a little like oh. insider info on how the book publishing industry works. Um, so Higge, a few years ago, the Danish word. Uh, which kind of means yes. cozy or um, was very, very popular. And there were several, well, probably more than several. Um, there were many books that came out on the topic of Hygge uh, and people were really into that. And so a couple of years ago, there was a woman in the UK who had written a news article, I think for the Telegraph, that was all about logom. And it was like, okay, we've been into this Danish word Hygge, but here's this Swedish concept that's a little bit more overarching. And here's how it plays out. And the week after that had come out, I had two different publishing companies email me and ask if I'd be interested in writing a book about logom. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting, because the book industry was trying to like tap into, you know, another like Scandinavian lifestyle trend. Um, so I was yeah. actually at first kind of opposed to the idea because I, I mean, I love writing books, so I was into that, but I, you know, I, I just get very sensitive to these things that we romanticize and kind of fetishize as well of these like yeah. external, um, ex quote unquote exotic trends, right? It's like, I think we can all come up with a list of things in the last 10 years that have been popular from elsewhere. Um, and I think that we have this tendency of thinking like, oh, in this culture, they do this thing. And if only we did that, everything would be so much better. 
And I feel like we're always as a culture, just wanting like kind of a quick fix pill. Um, And I think the Scandinavian countries certainly are, you know, very well respected and people are just kind of obsessed with them. And, you know, they sort of have this like influence in terms of design and culture. Um, And so they're very popular because of those things. Yeah, exactly. So there's this like mystique around them. And I think that that then makes people sort of excited about anything that comes out of there. Like, what are they doing that we are not doing well, right? Like, what's the secret? <laughs> yeah. um, and I was really hesitant to writing that book because I just didn't really want to play into that, <laughs> I guess. Um, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, this is actually a really interesting topic. And if I could dive a little deeper on it than just the sort of superficial layer, that would be nice. Um, mm-hmm. And... Yeah, so I said yes to doing it, but I mean, in very like non-logom style. I actually wrote that book in a month, (laughs) (laughs) which is like the worst way to write a book. Just for anybody (laughs) listening who wants to write a book, don't do that. But it was just because they wanted to they wanted to publish it within a certain time frame to like kind of hit that trend, right? Not um, very logum. <laughs> not very logum. No. Um, and it was funny because uh, my grandmother, she's passed away now. But at the time, my um, my mom was like, well, oh, my God, asked to write this book about logum. She's going to do it. And my Swedish grandmother was like, how could you write a book on that? Like, what is there to say? <laughs> to express sort of like how much that is just part of the Swedish ethos. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I, st- I still kind of hesitate with it, mostly because there's so much in Swedish culture. It's really easy to like idolize that. And I think a lot of people have pulled the sustainability component. And certainly, I think Sweden in general, obviously, politically, and in terms of infrastructure is like much, much more progressive than we are, and is so much better at, you know, putting policies in place that respect the environment. But you know, there's also a lot of like, things that are done in excess, like people redo their kitchens all the time. And there's like, you know, lots of fast fashion. And there's sort of, so I just think it's important to always try to see both sides of it, right? Right. Um, and not like idolize it for end all be all kind of. Like right. And I, and- yeah. And I also think that, you know, when you look at just in general, these sort of like wellness or lifestyle pieces that are written about the Scandinavian countries, you know, they're kind of always like talking about, oh, like, look, they have great life work balance and oh, they do this and they do that. I think the underlying thing is there's a very different political structure in place than we have here. Um, And I think that in the U.S. we often um, are focused on like, what are the individual things that we can do to make ourselves feel better? Because those are the only things that kind of feel like they're in our control because the rest of it is so out of our control. And we do not have a system that supports people. Um, We don't have a system that requires a healthy amount of vacation time. We don't have a system that allows for acceptable um, family leave. You know, Um, we don't have a system that supports people when they're sick. So I think that those are like the larger underlying things that make that, yeah, much more than a trend and just like much more complex and nuanced. But the easy takeaway is kind of like, oh, if only I, you know, wore more wool sweaters and took coffee breaks, I'd feel better. 
I mean, yeah. you probably will feel better if you wear more yeah. wool sweaters <laughs> and take off your brakes. But I'll just say that there's a that there's a larger conversation there that is much more nuanced and complex. Um, and yeah. you know, we currently live in a culture that doesn't really have those conversations or doesn't have the time for them. Yeah. I'll also say that it, it sort of feels like, you know, um, um, the America being a, a, a younger culture, um, it's almost, ha it's almost like kind of a, a younger person or an adolescent, um, looking up to big sister or whatever and wanting to mm. emulate the behavior and like, um, oh, uh, they do this in Sweden. We want to do that too. That'll yeah. that'll be good. Yeah. Um, so a, a little bit of that, and and um, America is so we're so fond of trends, and we're so fond of latching onto things, as you say, latching yeah. onto things that are gonna gonna fix something and fix yeah. something easily for us. And and yep. and by the way, we don't want to spend much money on it either. So right, right, we want it to be cheap. That would be the best. Yeah. Yeah. And quick. Yeah. In 21 days or five, five weeks or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I would probably make a ton of money if I came up with, like, the 21 day logum, like, workout diet uh, cleaning yes. one. You know? Yeah. yeah for sure. Yeah. That's like, you know, we are literally, I mean, I think when this podcast comes out, we will have. Will we be into our five week slow living challenge? Yeah. Um, and I have so many times thought like these words just like it's so frustrating that it's like we have to be like slow living challenge. But also like <laughs> it is challenging. So I'm okay calling it a challenge. And yeah. also it's what people understand. And like it's what that word is gonna that means something else than slow living yeah. exercise or like you know you know what I mean. But I think that the other thing that this plays into is if you think about how we look at wellness or well-being here i think we are constantly we see it on kind of like a point a to point b so it's like i am here and i need to get to there and here is how mm -hmm. i get to there and then like insert whatever <laughs> that's going to get you there whether that's like a food thing or like a cleaning thing or a slow living thing um but we forget that life is just like an ongoing learning process, right? And like, right. once you get to the next place, quote unquote, you're still moving and you're still evolving and still changing. So I think yeah. that that's where it's like, we want these things that provide easy fixes, forgetting that we're constantly changing. And the only thing that creates like, long term change are these like daily things where we're just finding our way back to balance. And those things look different on a daily basis. But that's why there is no like 21 day trick, because ultimately, right. your life is much longer than 21 days. Right? <laughs> or we is, hope that right? it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think like, I, you know, the example I always like is if you do yoga, if you're doing a balancing pose, like tree pose, or this idea that your body, so we call that a balancing pose, right? But if you think about that pose, your body is constantly making tons of micro movements to stay in balance, right? You don't just like get into the pose and stay perfectly still. And that's yeah. that, like, you are constantly seeking your way back to that center line. And I kind of like that analogy for just how we live, because balance is always changing for us. We're always adapting. We're always shifting. And there is no like, oh, I finally arrived and here I am. And now that's that. And I can just, you know, call it a day. Um, 
yeah, we're just we're human beings, you know. And if we if we stop learning and changing, well, like what's the point? <laughs> I guess, yeah. you know, like the point that you stop learning and changing is like the point that you're done. Yeah. Um, yeah. To your, to your uh, point about balance, I, I, I love to use the, um, the equinoxes as, um, a, as kind of a analogy to that. Um, uh, mm-hmm. the, the sun is actually the daylight and the sunlight are actually, only in perfect balance for a split second. The minute yeah. they hit balance, they're going back the other way. Yeah. So we're really almost, almost a hundred percent of the time going in and out of it, either in towards it or away from it. Mm-hmm. And that's like the way that. we are. And it, it, just human beings on the planet. And I think your your point about um, you know latching on to an idea that something's going to solve a problem for me. This one thing is going to lead to this one outcome. I think that's part of our, we cultivated that through our separation from nature. It's like we've cultivated this linear thinking and, you know, it, it, it comes out in all aspects of our lives, you know, even the economy, you know, the linear economy. And so we, we've, we've gotten away from living in nature. So we don't have a sense of that, that circularity, that, um, the cycles, and if we got back to that, that would be more inherent in our thinking and our approach to things. I just think it's a symptom of 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 just where where we have uh, ended up. What is that? Why do we think linear, linearly and not circularly? Capitalism. Yeah, I was, I was kind of as I, it doesn't make you a lot of money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think separation from nature has, has a lot to yeah. do with it too, because we're not living yeah. the cycles. We're not, you know, the change of seasons in our culture means what, what has appeared in the drugstore, you know, now, now it's red for Valentine's day and it's pretty soon it's going to be sort of being pink <laughs> and light green. Yeah. For Easter. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's how the seasons change in, in a capitalistic culture. Right. Well, I think um, too, because we, we, we exist within a model of doing and production and sort of everything is based off of that. So it's like, you know, the kind of like time is money uh, added, right? right? It's like that comes from a system where work is the thing that gives you value. Um, And I certainly think that work can bring a lot of value, but it's also not the only thing that brings value, but that's what we're told culturally and sort of anything that you do that doesn't fit into that production model, whether that's at work or even on your free time. Like I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday about um, when you do any type of um, sports or outdoor pursuits, it's like there's a difference. People would view uh, you saying, oh, I, I went for a bike ride for an hour because I just kind of wanted to pedal and think, and I didn't really have a plan of where I was going, but I just went out for an hour. People will view that differently than I rode my bike for an hour because I was trying to, you know, hit my personal best and I'm training for a longer race. And like, here's how many miles I did. And here was my calorie burn and you know, whatever. Those are those two things are viewed very differently. Because one is sort of just presence and being focused and the other one is product outcome focused and we're so goal oriented in this culture that if you're not working towards a goal it's kind of seen as a waste of time and I think that that has 
Um, I think that largely comes from this cult of work and capitalist model, but that has like seeped into our personal lives too, and how we view time and how we view use of time. And I think that to Mary's point, that is like puts us in a real disconnect from the natural cycle of things as well. Um, and so then we feel, we feel disjointed, you know, most of us don't feel great. Yeah. And we don't think twice about using an item once and throwing it away because we literally have no reason to think about anything else besides, yeah, we're just so disconnected. Um, what you said about wasting time, um, this comes up a lot in our discussions about slow living. Uh-huh. Like, what does that even mean, wasting time? Uh, you're, you're right that that is, that is a symptom of this product-oriented or accomplishment-oriented yep. mentality we have. Yep. What does that even mean? If you're thinking about right. slow living and is there, is there such a thing as wasted time? I mean, time is time. And yeah. we all have the same time every day. Well, and also when you use the word wasted, it's because you have put a certain value on time. You know, like you, you put a value, you, you like decided that there is a certain value to time, whether yeah. that's monetary or, or other. And then you've like, you've judged time essentially to then say, oh, well, this is a good use of time. And then, then yes. this isn't a good use of time. Uh which, and, and I agree. I mean, my mom always says like, well, you know, there's only 24 hours a day. You don't make time for something. Like you take time for something. You don't magically like start producing more hours, right? right. And we're always like, oh, I have to make time for that. It's like, no, you, there's only a certain amount of time. Um, but I think that's also that concept of time. I mean, we, I don't know. I mean, we have this way that we think about it. It's not really even like the 24 hour clock isn't really even connected to any natural cycle either. It's made up. (laughs) It's made up. It's like something that we just is very arbitrary. It's a construct. It is. Well, it was invented during the industrial revolution. I don't know about the 24 hour clock, but the, you know, the nine to five work day, you know, so they could, uh, so they could all show up at the same time. Yeah. To, you know, be most productive during the day or whatever. But, um, but yeah, we like to say uh, instead of spending time, you allow time, and that mm, sort of yeah. shifts. Especially for those like slow living things where like you know take another moment or like or like don't freak out about sitting in traffic, and it's it's not because you're making time for it or taking time for it or whatever, but you're allowing it to just be mm-hmm. yeah? instead of yeah. letting your body get into fight or flight yeah. mode because yeah. you have no control about. Um, what is happening during yeah. you know those fifteen minutes or whatever, and like we can really do a number on ourselves just in our head by thinking, oh my gosh, this is not good. Uh, you know, I should be doing X, Y, Z, and you're you're so right. It's all judgment. It's all just like we're just deciding. Subjective. So <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if we just turned it around and said, this is isn't this lovely? I can sit here for fifteen minutes and <laughs> yeah. I don't have to do anything. That's just the greatest thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we get more serotonin that way. Yeah. Easier said than done, right? Yeah. There, yeah. I mean, all this stuff is like easy to talk about. It's harder to put. Oh yeah. Mind. Oh yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, that's hard. that's hard talking about it so easily. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
I wanted to go back to something else too. You know, we were talking about the trends and the latching onto things. Um, there's a lot of talk about slow living these days. Do you think slow living is going to take on this this trend thing or this trend? Uh, I mean, I think it already has in a sense. I mean, I think there's definitely, and I and I think that I always get, yeah, a little bit hesitant to. It's kind of like the zero waste stuff. There is also this yeah. element of privilege really wrapped up into this stuff too. Oh gosh, yeah. You know, yeah. It's like if you have enough food on the table and a roof over your head to even have the time to consider this stuff, it already puts you in a place of privilege that a lot of people are not in. And I think that's where this this onus like on the individual to take care of all this stuff. As I was thinking about that with the zero waste thing. It's like I think it's great to take individual action. And I think taking individual action gives you sort of more control over your everyday life and you get to make more choices. However, you know, there's a infrastructure that's in place um, that allows companies to continue to not take responsibility and then all the responsibilities put on the individual and not all individuals are in a position to make these choices. And so I think then, you know, there's a lot of kind of shame and blame that's put on people when that shame and blame should be put on the companies that are in control of all of that. And I think that that's too bad because I think a lot of these things are really beneficial to people, but there is sort of so much privilege like wrapped up into it as well. You know, I was even talking about this with a friend yesterday because we were talking about mending and visible mending. And he was, um, he'd been asking me just for some resources and wanted to like mend some of his pairs of jeans. And then he'd sent me an article uh, about um, essentially about like dress code for or the clothes that people wear um, to interviews. And when you've been born um, it, it, when you kind of come out of poverty, um, needing to dress well, uh, just like th that context of clothes really matter. Um, and like, you can't tell, you know, like buying secondhand, there's two elements of buying secondhand. One is you have the privilege to be able to choose to buy secondhand. And the other is you buy secondhand because that's all that's available to you. And I was thinking about that in a visible mending context. Like it's a privilege to be able to proudly showcase a mend on your item mm -hmm. of clothing because you're essentially making a statement about I could have purchased something new, but I chose not to. And that comes in a culture of, you know, before mending was just something that everyone did because you didn't have yeah. money to buy something new. And now it's this like symbol. And I think that, you know, not, not that it's right or wrong. I just think it's important to like acknowledge some of that so we can start to unpack it because otherwise I think these things can become these sort of very privileged trends that you only have kind of access to if you're from a certain socioeconomic and racial background. Uh, and, yeah. and that's, yeah. That those are like harder questions. That's so true. And when the when the when that discussion comes up about sustainability being about privilege, my concern is that that shuts the the discussion down. For instance, uh, only a very small segment of the population can actually uh, 
afford to buy these things that are produced sustainably nowadays. But that is not okay. I, I think it's we have a certain responsibility to talk about these things so that they become more mainstream. And like you were saying about, you know, putting policies into place, it, we need to use our voices to say these policies are not okay. They're ruining our health. They're ruining our family life. And only then will the larger structures begin to respond. What do you think? Yeah. And I'll also add too quickly. Um, I think that with privilege comes responsibility. And so I think, yeah, if you have the privilege to choose, there's no excuse to not be choosing. You know, you have the responsibility. It's so yeah, nuanced. It's, it's very, very nuanced. And and to not talk about it means almost that you're saying, okay, it's okay that that we're out there producing all this cheap stuff that everybody can afford. But that's really not yeah, that, and that's that's the problem uh, is that is the overproduction because we want everyone to feel like they can have enough stuff to feel good. Like the problem is that we think stuff equals wellness wellness well-being. yeah yeah of course no and I, I would definitely agree I mean I always think of that the you know the idea that if if you have the ability to choose then it's not really a choice anymore it's a responsibility because you then become an advocate for making change and I always think about that with food because I've written about food for a long time yes and um, I don't know what the statistics are now but a few years ago definitely like for fast food you know, predominantly who was buying fast food, it's middle income. So it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, not people who can't afford anything else. It was actually people that have enough income to buy something else and are still opting for fast food. Um, So I think that there's always like a large part of the population that has the ability to make other choices. And if we all made those choices, that would create a better system that then you know, everyone would be able to tap into. It's the same with, you know, organic farming and, um, you know, buying from local, buying from local farms. And, you know, if you have the ability to do so, then I think you should, (laughs) because (laughs) not everybody has the ability to do so. But if those farmers don't get support, um, they can't make a livelihood. And also if they don't have, if there's not enough groundswell support for that, then there's no, you know, those things don't expand outwards. Um, yeah, so I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I just think it's all, they're, they're all just uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. why I think we just, I think that's why we just pull the plug on them. So it's like, yeah, well, this is too uncomfortable and I don't really want to yeah. think about this too much. So I'm just not into it and call yeah. it a day. You and know, going back <laughs> to the, um, you said earlier, shame and blame. And that's mm-hmm. like, it, it's on like, I think because we go there so quickly, um, the, you know, the call out culture, the that's mm-hmm. like for some reason it sucks and no one likes to to feel or think those things. But it's like more comfortable. It's like easier to yeah. be blame to blame and like feel shame. You know, like that's just kind of like yeah. I think emotionally that's how we're programmed. We like go there really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's not productive. No, not at all. And also, I think, too, when you take a stand for something, like, let's say you have taken a stand for, um, I don't know, using less plastic in your everyday life. When you have publicly vocalized that, either to friends or your community, whatever, you're all of a sudden judged in a different way than someone who hasn't taken that stand. You know, so it's Mm -hmm. like, if you have sort of intentionally said, well, I'm really working hard to like, I don't, get plastic bags at the grocery store and I, I'm trying not to buy items that are packaged in single use packaging. 
if somebody then sees you buy a water plastic water bottle, right, mm -hmm. they're going to make a comment. Whereas somebody who hasn't taken that stand, nobody's going to question when mm -hmm. they buy a plastic water bottle. And I think that that is so interesting, too, that when you have like publicly put yourself out there for standing for something, you are then held to higher standards and criteria. Um, and, and then it's like easier to get blamed for stuff, which is a, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. a, just an interesting kind of like, I don't know if that's just human behavior. Um, but, but yeah. I've always found that kind of intriguing. Well, that, that puts, uh, people that are talking and having these conversations have to be kind of careful about what you say. However, that sort of circles, um, back around to, um, education is such a big piece of it. Like there are people out there making people who could make decisions that are going to help the whole and help create new systems that don't know what the deal is. They haven't heard yet. I mean, to, uh, to those of us that to work in this um, sector, we say, how can someone not have heard about, you know, fast fashion or um, how could someone not be aware of what the, the food system is doing to yeah. our health? But there are still are a lot of people that just don't know. So we are they misinformed. Yeah. So we feel strongly that we need to keep talking, just keep talking about it. And yeah, we're going to get, you know, people are going to go, oh, you know, not everybody can afford this. Or yeah, no, you're only talking to certain people, but at least we're talking and hopefully more and more people are hearing. And the more people that hear, the more people are able to make the yeah. choices. They're going to help change things. Well, and I think that gets back to just the point of, you know, there's no we've never like arrived and know everything, right? There's no, there's no like point right. A to point B and then you're done. Like it's all a continuing learning process. So I think it's just important to keep asking questions and acknowledge that there's probably no one right answer, but you have to mm -hmm. continually keep asking questions to move forward. Um, and that means continuing to have a conversation and to not shut conversations down. Uh, and that's probably the most important thing is just acknowledging that like we can all make a change, you know, today and then another change tomorrow and another change the next day. And we just continue moving forward in that way um, because, you know, big change doesn't usually happen overnight. Uh, it's all gradual. Yeah. And usually when you solve a problem, you create another problem. <laughs> it's just kind of how it works. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, and I think that that we, I mean, and we love for things to be very black and white, right? Like we love for things mm -hmm. to just have a clean answer and that's that. And most things don't because they're all, like you were saying earlier, Mary, it's like because we've gotten away from these natural cycles, we've also gotten away from understanding that everything is connected. Um, I think like good examples of that are, uh, you know, times when we have either introduced like a species into another country to like deal with an outbreak of another, like a, you know, an influx of another species. And then like in awesome, my husband's from Australia and they, um, that happens all the time there, like where they've like brought in animals to deal with like an infestation of insects or something. And then, and then they bring in like, there's the toad that I'm thinking of in particular. And now this toad is like all over the place because it was not, an, you know, it's not native. And yeah. it was brought in to deal with a certain problem. And it's like, but now there's another problem. And I think because we've gotten away from this like systemic way of thinking where like everything at its yeah. core is connected, if we can't 
if we think that we can just pull one thing out and not impact the rest, then we then we just don't understand the complexity of everything. Um, and I think that's probably a large part of the problem too. Yeah, there, there's such an um, unwillingness to embrace complexity. Yeah, and embrace um, one thing being okay and its opposite being okay too. Yeah, Wait, we're so black and white, like you said. Since you do so many things on it, you're an artist, <sighs> you're a writer, you are a speaker, right? You, 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 you do workshops and things and mm-hmm. yep. present, presenter yep. and all these things. And um, how, what is your secret of balancing? Tell us your secret. Give us your tips yeah, and tricks. I want to know. 21 day fix. <laughs> 21 day fix. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say um, things you have to say about creating balance and sustainability in your own life. And yeah. by the way, sustainability, as you make a point in your book, um, you know, it's more about lifestyle and, and well-being and not not so much about how much plastic you use or whatever. It's, it's yeah. much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I don't think I have a secret. I mean, I think that one, I don't have children. So there is that. Like I have time and energy available, but if I had children, that would go to that. So I have time and energy to devote to other things. Um, so I like to be respectful of all my friends who do have children and I just watch them do the multitude of things that they do and I'm always blown away because I just think I don't know how they make that work (laughs) um two I mean I don't know I think I I have always been a person who likes to make and create things so I'm just going to always be doing that regardless of whether that's for work or personal so that's just part of who I am and how I sort of interpret the world around me and I feel better if I'm making things whether that's food or art or um you know um so that is just kind of like an inherent personality trait I guess you could say um two or I guess I'm on my third point now um (laughs) my my tips uh I don't know. I think I've always, I've always lived pretty small. Um, I think that that probably comes from like growing up in the forest in a house that my parents built. Um, we just had a, I don't know. I mean, I, I had the privilege of getting to travel um, as a, as a young person and then also did a lot of traveling as I got older. Um, so I've had that ability. I was also an only child. So that sort of provided me a lot of avenues that maybe I wouldn't have had available to me if, you know, there had been more, more people in the family, more mouths to feed. Um, but I think that I've always, I don't know. I just feel like I've always lived pretty small, like physically, definitely, you know, I've only lived in like small spaces, really. Like I lived in a, in a shared house in Portland after college. And then I lived in the in an apartment by myself. that was like a studio. And then when I lived in Paris, um, I share, you know, my husband and I, um, we live in 300 square feet <laughs> together and work oh from gosh. home. Uh, and then what? when we moved, yeah. And then when we moved to our current space, um, it's probably like six or 700 square feet, which just felt like enormous to us when we moved in. <laughs> like I remember when we moved into this place, which is just a little rental that we have. It's just one of those like long rectangular kind of, I don't know what they call those, like I don't know if they're modular, but you know, just like the homes that are kind of 
standard um, built. Uh, and when we moved in, we like we used to one of us would like stand in the bedroom and the other person would stand in the kitchen and be like, can you hear me as a joke? Because like, obviously <laughs> we could, you know, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't know. I struggle on a daily basis with um, all of the things that other people struggle with, which would be comparison and social definitions of success and whether or not I'm doing the right thing. Um, those are all things that I'm constantly have on my mind, you know, like we don't own a house, which always feels like the thing that we quote unquote should have. Um, and we don't, uh, we only have one car. Um, both my husband and I work for ourselves, which, uh, provides a lot of like flexibility and opportunities, but it is also a financial struggle. Um, at many times, uh, it does mean that I can like make sourdough bread, uh, that I probably wouldn't be making if I was, you know, working a regular desk job. Uh, we also then get to live in the country in a more rural community because we don't have to commute. Um, I probably wouldn't live out here if I had to commute because I really don't like spending a lot of time in the car. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like there's, there's no one secret, but I would say that all of, I think it's easy in our social media age to like look at people from the outside and take it just at face value and then compare ourselves to that. And, you know, every single person, no matter where they're at, is making sacrifices and compromises and nothing really looks on the inside what it looks like on the outside. <laughs> yeah. Um, We're so visually oriented. Mm, you know, yeah. we, we just yeah. want to look at those pictures and go and, and create in our minds what we think is the, re the reality of what we're seeing. And it's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but I, but I would say like I mean if I I mean I know we were joking about tips, but I know that tips are helpful <laughs> for people. Um, yeah. I mean I, I do think like when I teach um, like workshops and stuff, I, I do like to remind people that like when it comes to creative work, so when it comes to art, like making art or writing or making food or you know, whatever your creative kind of act is, I think we do have this because it gets back to our point earlier of just being very like product outcome focused. Um, we have this like expectation that it's going to be a masterpiece every time and that we have to devote all this time to it and like make it extraordinary. And I think that then that gets us away from the value of the process of making things. And it's the process that gives us a lot of nourishment. Um, and so I think if you can just shift that attention and sort of remove yourself from the process. Food is obviously different because if you need to eat dinner, you need to eat dinner. So like you need the end product to be edible. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for other things, you know, I think it's like you can just scribble in a notebook for five minutes because you had five minutes between meetings or, you know, between a phone call. Um, you can do that for five minutes and not produce something great, but you spent those five minutes doing something that felt good to you. Uh, and I think that like I always like to say that creativity happens in the in-between like moments or spaces because yeah. I, I think we have this idea like, oh, if only I had two weeks to myself in a cabin, like overlooking a lake, then I could produce my creative work. <laughs> and it's like, don't get me wrong. If somebody wants to offer that up, I will gladly jump on board and take that. But if that's if we are constantly telling ourselves that like we can't do that creative work without that thing, we're never going to get anything done. Um, and I think it's the same thing with like spending time 
outside. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, you know, if only I had three weeks to go on like a backpacking trip in Patagonia, that would be amazing. And it's like, well, okay, that would be amazing. Again, if somebody wants to offer that up, I'll gladly say yes. Um, but, but that's just, that's not part of our everyday lives, right? So where do we have space in our everyday to go and do these things that we know fill us with a lot of um, contentment? So whether that's like, I don't know, taking a walk and just like walking up to a tree and staring at the bark for five minutes or, you know, just like really small stuff. I think that stuff is so essential and we forget that that's available to us um, on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's probably the thing that I try to share the most with people. Um, a good example comes to mind. So I just did, there's a, um, you guys might be familiar with it, but out of Brooklyn, there's a thing called the Sketchbook Project. And it's this like art library where they house these sketchbooks um, that people have filled out. So you can actually buy a sketchbook from them. That money goes to like maintaining that sketchbook library. And then you have a certain amount of time to like fill that sketchbook out with whatever you want. Um, and I've always wanted to do that. And so I had bought two sketchbooks at the end of last summer for my husband and I. And I was like, okay, this is great. Like they're due on February 1st next year. Have so much time. I'm going to do something amazing in that sketchbook. It's going to be incredible. You know, like, and then of course life happens because life always happens. And then um, just have had a lot of personal stuff going on lately. And so this weekend I said to my husband, okay, forget it. Like we're just it's fine. I paid for those, but I'm, we're not going to send them in. It's like, it's fine. It's, we can just buy new ones. It's not a big deal. It's just money. Like it's okay. And he was like, no, we need to make time for this. He's like, okay, how about on Tuesday night? We'll have art night. And I was like, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. Or it means I still have to overnight them like on Wednesday, but it's fine. We'll do them. And so Tuesday night rolled around and there were some like suggested themes for, to fill the sketchbook out. And one of them was expires in an hour. And I was like, oh, oh, I was like, I know what we should do. I was like, let's only give ourselves an hour. I was like, we'll put a timer on and we'll see like what we can make in an hour. Um, and so we like got out. So we like took out like pencils and pens and paint, just took out a bunch of art supplies, put them on the kitchen t table. It was like after dinner. So it was like eight o'clock. And, and so Luke like put on a timer and it was like, okay, go. And it was such a cathartic experience of like, okay, one, you only have an hour. So you have these like restrictions and kind of boundaries as to what you're going to be able to do, which then shifts your expectations. Cause you're like, I only have an hour. Clearly I'm not going to make like a masterpiece in an hour. I mean, maybe you will, but I think you sort of, yeah. it takes a little bit of the pressure off. And two, it was just this like hyper focused time. And afterwards, we both said it felt like it felt like we'd sat down and like taken an exam where you just like <laughs> dumped everything out of yourself, like onto the pages. And it was such an amazing, like, I don't know, it was just an hour, right? Um, but it just felt so good. And I was, and then I was like, you know, here, I'd spent like all these months kind of thinking about this sketchbook, not doing it, <laughs> I was like overthinking the process. And then what I had to do was just like sit down and do the work. Um, and yes, I still had to pay money to overnight those sketchbooks, but I've now sent them off and they're finished and I did it. But it was such a good reminder of like, you, you, you take the time that you have, you know? Um, yeah. And I think if you talk to any creative person, like writers or artists, you know, like I think of like novelists. So, so many stories of people like, well, you know, 
um, I had three kids and I wrote this book between the hours of, you know, 4.30 and 5.30 every morning because that was the only time that I had to myself. Or, you know, there's lots of examples of these things being done in small increments. And I think we have really, an illusion. You wrote your book in a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was definitely written between the hours of like six and eight in the morning. But um, yeah, I, th- I yeah. think that those, to take advantage of those small spaces throughout the day and to like honor those and like, allow that time um to like yeah allow that 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 time to be what you need it to be um and I think that most of us probably myself included uh use those small moments of time for other things that maybe don't feel as nourishing yeah and kind of you know? to loop it back to our earlier conversation about productivity and feeling like that's how I am like in those mm-hmm. in between times I will get so like a like wrapped up in like a little ball of anxiety because I'm like wait nobody need to be being productive mm-hmm. and so like mm-hmm. if I'm if I don't give myself the permission to sit down and and sort of reframe that as productivity and kind of like let my creative self go for five minutes then um I'm going to be like, okay, well, what can I do in these five minutes? And then I'm going to sit there and stew about what would be the most productive thing for me to do for five minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the five minutes are gone. And then right. Or, or it's like that classic thing of like, oh, you spent five minutes like refreshing your email inbox, kind of staring right. at your emails, yeah. being totally overwhelmed by them and actually not responding to any of them. And it's like mm-hmm. that five minutes would have been better put to use staring out the window and just thinking. <laughs> But it's like, for some reason, we're like, oh, but if I'm in my email inbox, like I'm working at being productive, even though I'm always like, probably most of my time in my email inbox is wasting my time. Again, (laughs) and then we're talking about waste so that I'm putting about all my time, but all to say that, you know, I I think that that whole idea of like, how we use our time and when we use it and what we use it for probably needs a lot of, um, a lot of shifting. I remember an article that a friend had sent me a few years ago, and the title was something along the lines of, you could be great at email, but do you want to be? And the whole, <laughs> I, I'm paraphrasing, I don't know, maybe it was yeah. not exactly that, but the, the gist of it was it was a writer who had written it. And it was kind of about how, you know, we're always kind of dreading the number of emails in our inbox. And we're always staring at the emails being like, Oh, that I haven't responded to that person in a week. You know, it's like, there's always some kind of like stress and anxiety related to emails. I think a lot of people have that. And her whole point was, yes, you could spend all of your time answering all of your emails diligently, getting your emails like down to zero, you know, and just always being on top of it. But what does that require from you energy wise? And what does that mean in terms of taking time away from something else? And like, what is important to you? Is it important for you to have like zero inbox? Or is it important for you to allow yourself the time to work on your creative work, be that like writing a book or an essay, whatever. Um, And that at some point, we have to make these choices of an acceptance of like, I'm not going to be great at this thing. But I also, it's not at the top of my priority list and I'm going to give it less time because I'm giving more time to this other thing that I've prioritized. Uh, And I think that that is really important and essential. That hits a nerve because we're just going to share. Are you ready? Because we're both staring at our computers. Um, Mine, so I have my personal email has 240 unread. Lady Uh Farmer work email is 505. Uh That's uh me. Uh-huh. Moving right along. Mom, do you want to tell us your number? 
Yeah. In the big red bubble, you yeah, know, that's I like have... designed to be anxiety oh, inducing. Yeah, this yep. like this you should is, share. Give me a stomachache. Okay, I here. have 6,789. <laughs> <laughs> this is really, this just really bugs me. But if I go in there, it's exactly what you're saying on it. Am I going to go in there and <laughs> no. look at all those and decide I don't need them? However, if I just massively delete, there's going to be something in there I want to refer to. Yeah. So I'm scared to just like get rid of him. So I'm constantly. So thank you for saying that. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I I also I'm terrible at email. So if anybody on this show chooses to email me at some point, just know that it might take me like three months to get back to you. Not because I I look at my no. email every day. I just am no. like, that's not the most essential yeah. thing I need to deal with right now. And then three weeks later, I'm like, oh, I actually really needed to respond to that person. But I I yeah. think that. You know, I mean, I, so I hear I'm in my Gmail account, which um, I will say <laughs> this is not a true value because it, since in Gmail, you can just look at the primary emails, you oh, know, yeah. there's like thousands in the promotions tab, but in the primary, there's yeah. 181 unread. Yeah. Oh, that's um, under control. No, I think you're, you're I, I don't feel under control about it. Junk and promotions too. Yeah. That's like your, but that's everything. I think too, when uh. we're talking about like small or slow living, it's like, I agree, Mary, with you. There is this element of like, oh, okay, th there's a New Yorker article I want to read. And oh, there's a really interesting newsletter that I want. And oh, that might be a reference mm -hmm. for later. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's kind of like, can you imagine if all of these emails were actual letters or magazines? Like your house would be full of them. And it's like, because mm -hmm. we're able to just have them in the cloud and in the digital space, um, we are like allow ourselves to just hold on to these things in a way that yeah. we would physically not be able to if they were tangible items. And I think that that's such a good point. It's like important to just keep that in mind because uh, my mom and I talk about this a lot because we both there's a couple of like art newsletters that we're on, and she's like, I just don't want to delete them because I might go back to them later. And I'm like, but are you going to? <laughs> and like, and yes, maybe you will, um, and that's great. But also, you know. Is that how you want to use your time? One, maybe you want to use that time making art instead. Um, and two, I think to like let go of the stress that we have that's like connected to like, oh, well, I deleted it and I didn't even look at it. It's fine. Just get it out of yeah, there. Yeah, I know. Digital clutter is still clutter. I, I know. And it's kind of like when you get rid of stuff in your house, you never, you, you, you agonize over when not to get rid of something and then you get rid of it and you never even think about it again. Ever. Yeah. You know, they're, you yeah. know, so um, tell us about the other books you wrote and what they're about. Sure. So, okay. My first book, I'm going to turn around and look at my bookshelf, um, The Culinary Cyclist. So that one, I wrote that, or the idea I had for it was when I lived in Portland, so it's kind of like a crossover of slow living, slow food. Um, so you don't have to be a cyclist to enjoy it. Um, but it has like some recipes in it. And I think books are a really funny thing. <laughs> you know, we live in a digital age where we're on a, we're not even on a 24 hour news cycle anymore. I think we're on like a six hour news cycle, but um, you know, like everything moves so fast, but books are this really funny thing. They become these like time capsules. Like I read that book and I almost can't read it. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's just such a different, it's a different me. Right. And for me, that book is 
just this version of myself that is not where I'm at anymore because we change and evolve like we talked about earlier. But somebody who reads that book for the first time is like, oh, this is what Anna Brownis is about. And I always <laughs> try to be conscious of that when I read other books. Um, and I think yeah. about that in terms of, you know, authors who have had books out for a really long time. Um, but then you come to it for the first time. And that's kind of your entry point into it. I just think that's interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, that's just a little side note. Um, let's see. Then Fika, The Art of the Swedish Coffee Break. Uh, and then Hello Bicycle. So that's another bike. I call that the non-wonky guide to cycling. Uh, so that's just kind of all about, you know, if you ride your bike, you get to call yourself a cyclist and just enjoy more biking. Um, and then Live Logom, like we already talked about. I also, so I used to, I lived in Paris for a few years. And while there, I worked on a self-published project with a photographer that was called Paris Coffee Revolution. Um, so that was kind of a documentation of the growing specialty coffee scene uh, that was there. Um, and that, I don't sell it here, but you, you can definitely get them, pariscoffeerevolution.com. I think you can get them at. Um, oh, um, Best Served Wild, which is an outdoor oh. cookbook. So it's kind of like camping recipes. Uh, and then I also, like I said, publish a small zine about food called Comestible. Um, I've done that for a couple of years. I took last year off from publishing the print edition because I was kind of overwhelmed by it all. But I'm working on the next issue right now. Um, and are you still doing the food and fiber project? We always, I mean, not actively, although there's always um, a desire and an intention, but um, yeah, you know how it is with passion projects. Oh, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, we do. And, uh, also, didn't you, did you just do something with the new edition of Joy of Cooking? I mean, you didn't write it, but oh, yeah, paper I did, cuts, right? Mm -hmm, I did paper cuts, yep, for the, which just came oh, out wow. in um, November. Yeah. I just thought it's yep. yeah, we're so sitting all... at our library doing this, and it's like on the front shelf of our library when we walked in. Oh, I'll show it to you. Oh, yeah. And one of I, her, um, like, well, like a bunch of her paper cuts oh are in it. Gosh. Yeah, every chapter has a paper cut. <laughs> it's because in the in the original. So for those listeners who don't know about the history of Joy of Cooking, because I didn't, <laughs> but um, the original. So Irma Rombauer uh, was the woman who wrote uh, the first Joy of Cooking. Um, in the late 30s. I can't remember the exact date, but she had her daughter, Marion, make uh, paper cut silhouettes for each of the chapters in the first edition. So a couple of the older ones still have them in there. And then they took them out. Uh, and then this new edition is Irma's great-grandson uh, and his wife were the ones who worked on this new edition. And they were working on that for like the last decade which is a really long time to work on. So talk about slow living. That's a yeah, slow yeah. process. Um, slow writing. We understand. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they wanted to kind of just give a nod to that heritage of the book. Um, so that's why they had wanted paper cuts in there. Um, sort of like that's a, so cool. a hard back to that original one. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to have a look at that. That's yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. What is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you do? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I would say that 
I do a lot of different things. And in my mind, they all make sense and connect. Uh, and I think for people who follow my work and like my work, they get that. Um, so I would just hope that people come into like the Anabronis web of, <laughs> <laughs> of things. Um, because I think from the outside, it can seem a little bit disjointed. Uh, but if you start looking at it, it all makes sense. Um, and I think it all kind of comes down to, I don't know, taking time, slowing down, and just sort of appreciating the things that are around us every day. Can you somehow bring everything we've talked about in this really wonderful and interesting dis discussion, can you loop it back around to how this is relevant to the good dirt? That's another good question. Well, I would say that I think when it comes to like living slowly and continuing to think about who we are and how we show up on this planet. And I think it just all comes back to that it's a process and it's just an ongoing process and there's no right answer. And it all just requires small steps and questions along the way um, to constantly shift where we're going, maybe change where we're going. Um, and just to bring a little bit more attention and awareness to that. Um, and even if you're only bringing 10 minutes of attention and awareness into your everyday, I think that that is really helpful and beneficial. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Anna. Yeah. We're so happy to talk to you and I can't wait to meet you in person. I feel like I've known you for a while, over yeah. the internet, but, um, but we've never met, which is sad. We'll have to fix that. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Anna. I just really enjoyed this conversation oh, so thank much. You. It was great fun, so interesting, and we could talk all day, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Anna, and we hope you'll continue to tune in to our future episodes. We're hoping to release twice a month on Fridays um, for the rest of the year, really. Um, I really did love this conversation. I think that Anna had a lot to say about not, kind of like we were talking in the beginning, about not beating yourself up for not fitting into a certain structure or something. I think as creative people, naturally, uh, it's hard to have a structure, but we all need structure to feel safe. And so I think balancing a creative life is kind of um, figuring out how to live in that space, that uncomfortableness between structure and not structure and fitting in and not fitting in and fixing yourself and then not worrying about fixing yourself. So I loved all of that. Yes, and her her perspective from two different cultures, and she's she's been very immersed in each one, so she can speak with experience about how things look from a step back. Um, and I think that's so interesting, and just sometimes a, a different angle on something, a different perspective is so valuable in helping us form our own thoughts and decisions. And also, I love the way this fit into our Slow Living Challenge week. Um, it was just such a, a nice parallel to the whole thing about, about time and the decisions you make about time. And we hope that our Slow Living Challenge participants out there are able to tune into this 
this week. And, and um, let us know how it's going. And please continue to share your stories and your pictures because it really adds value to the whole experience for everyone, I think. And um, we just really appreciate it. So thank you very much. If you'd like to reach out to the podcast directly, we do have an email for the podcast. It's thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. If you're not already, make sure you're following us on Instagram at weareladyfarmer. Find us on Facebook, uh, go to our website and sign up for our newsletter, all the things. We're so excited to have you in the fold and we'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Bye.